Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today, for our 150th episode, we will be doing something a little different. Every 50th episode on Lay of the Land thus far, I have tried to honor the request I occasionally get from listeners like you that from time to time, you'd actually like to hear more of my own thoughts and flip the proverbial script from host to guest. So on the 50th episode, I explored my own professional journey, the concept of startup ecosystems, and what it takes to actually get that entrepreneurial flywheel going. On the 100th episode, I reflected on what universal lessons I think we can take with us from Lay of the Land overall. What are these patterns and commonalities across all of the stories that we've heard from people trying to build great things? From what inspires and motivates founders to pursue entrepreneurship in the first place, to where founding ideas actually come from, to the meaning and importance of culture. Which brings us to episode 150. Personally, I am much more a fan of listening than I am of speaking. To reference the greatest Cleveland entrepreneur of all time, who unfortunately we will not get the opportunity to ever have on this podcast, as he did pass away in 1937, but fortunately there is quite a lot written and documented about John D. Rockefeller. He often recited a poem that reads, A wise old owl lived in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why aren't we all like that wise old bird? For me, (laughs) this poem resonates deeply. Lay of the Land has become my oak tree in that regard, as it allows me to hear, to listen, and to learn. But with all of that said, for the 150th episode of Lay of the Land, I'll continue this now tradition of taking a deliberate pause and doing my best to share some of my own thinking and reflections. Fortunately, my friend Jonathan Satofsky runs his own podcast called Wisdom, Wealth, and Wellness, and hosted me graciously as a guest where I got to share some of my own thinking. And really in great company, as he's featured many far wiser than myself on his podcast, like Dan Ariely, one of the pioneers of behavioral economics, Greg Hardin, an executive and performance coach to folks like Tom Brady and Michael Phelps as well as Joel Greenblatt, a renowned value investor and author of one of the books that actually got me into investing in the first place many years ago, as well as many others. In our episode, which I am resharing on Lay of the Land today, Jonathan and I cover a whole variety of themes across the worlds of product management, investing, and entrepreneurship, and we explore some other really fun topics as well. I really enjoyed being the guest on a podcast for once. So with that, I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you do, I encourage you to check out other episodes from Jonathan's podcast as well. What's fascinating to me about this overall is like why you would even opt to do entrepreneurship in the first place, because there are evidently so many reasons to not do it. You know, just the the all-encompassing nature of it that anything but relentless focus is typically fatal, the just like deluge and ubiquity of rejection, the the emotional roller coaster, and just like the probabilistically low likelihood that you're going to even be successful. Welcome to Wisdom, Wealth, and Wellness, a podcast on overcoming behavioral biases and blind spots. 
sponsored by Satofsky Asset Management, and this is Jonathan Satofsky. Today is a uh, apropos day to talk to this guest, Jeffrey Stern, the co-founder of Actual, a healthcare workforce intelligence startup, which has successfully raised $41 million in funding. He holds a position as a partner of Impact Architects, where he's dedicated to assisting fellow entrepreneurs in achieving their best uh, and fostering growth in their ventures. In addition, he's had professional roles. Jeffrey hosts the Lay of the Land podcast, focusing on entrepreneurship in Northeast Ohio, which is why I'm wearing my Michigan Wolverine shirt today, in case he <laughs> is getting you know, brainwashed by the Ohio State Buckeyes. Anyway, apart from his work, Jeffrey occasionally engages in investing and providing advice to other entrepreneurs. Jeffrey is an optimist who believes telling the story of those most inspiring builders around us is one of the best ways to learn and inspire more to build. Thanks for coming, Jeff. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I, I hope the Ohio State Buckeyes haven't got into your under your skin yet, right? They haven't uh, indoctrinated you with their colors. I hope. No, not so much. Not so. Okay, much. good, good. All right. <laughs> so let's let let's kick it off. You know, you you're fascinating, uh, a fascinating person. Just a, a load, a wealth of knowledge for a young age. Just have so much to talk about. But you wrote in your blog, if you start a sentence with, "I could be wrong, but." You probably should proceed with a question instead of a declaration. Most everyone knows a lot less about how the world works than they think they do. I love that. The concept <laughs> of unknown unknowns is intriguing. Uh, John Marie Eviard used to talk about that, actually. You know, if we can focus on the unknown unknowns, the upside will take care of itself. But can you provide examples of situations where when you or people you've worked with were unaware of their lack of knowledge and how we can mitigate that cognitive bias? Sure, sure. I, I think uh, probably most of my experiences are, are examples of this. I don't know. Any, any situation that you go into, you go into very rarely knowing what you don't know. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what makes it interesting and fun in the first place versus if you were like fully omniscient and, uh, you know, figuring out how to operate in that, in that uncertainty. I think about this idea mostly in the context of trying to figure out and prioritize learning what is true uh, over being right. Um, and I think that's typically very challenging because uh, typically the stronger your conviction that you have in something, the deeper the story you're telling yourself uh, is the the deeper that becomes entrenched in your mind, the harder it is to unsee it or or see like an alternative path that uh, may actually be true because that would mean you were wrong. Uh, and that to me is kind of the whole essence of entrepreneurship and what it looks like. So there, there's call, a concept. I was going to say we call that anchoring bias, but yeah, go ahead. You know, the, so the concept that I, that I I like to think about and it just seems to come up all the time is uh, the idea that the business that your company succeeds with is very rarely the business that your company starts with. And it's rare because it is so difficult to discern at the onset of what you're building, the exact combination of product and market that's going to result in the uh, elusive product market fit. Um, and what we, you know, what will actually result in business success. And so, so much of the startup journey is just trying to survive long enough to continue to ask new questions, uh, and refine, you know, those combinations of things to unlock real value. 
Um, and I embedded in that sentiment, I think, uh, is that you really just have to fall a lot more in love with the problem that you're trying to solve than the solution because your solution more often than not is not going to be correct. It's not going to be the final solution. Uh, and so it's just this constantly humbling process of trying to build and iterate uh, and survive as you, as you learn and, and kind of work your way through you know, what is working, what isn't working, and trying to double down and reorient around what actually is working. I love that. So, so what problem is actual? And maybe just for, for the, for those that don't know, what, what is actual? What problem is actual trying to solve in, in your current venture? What's, what's the, the root of it? How did it originate? Maybe give a little background. Yeah. So when a doctor goes to work at a health system, uh, they go through a background check, like, like you or I would for a normal job. Um, but because they are doctors, it is more involved. Uh, as, as it probably should be because on the nefarious side of the spectrum, you're trying to avoid doctor death kind of situations where someone might be impersonating a doctor. And then more practically speaking, uh, if you were to go see a cardiologist, you would want to be pretty sure that they studied cardiology and not, you know, nephrology. Um, (laughs) and so all all that is, Yes. So all that's good. Like that, that is a good premise. Uh, and I'm glad that this whole process exists. The, the challenge though, is that the time, uh, after a doctor is hired and before they can start practicing, uh, to do this verification takes about in the industry, a hundred days on average. And that is problematic because, uh, health systems can't enroll doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, all, all kinds of clinicians uh, in, in insurance. And so they can't bill for them. And they also can't, the doctors themselves can't practice. So on average, you have doctors who are worth between seven and $10,000 a day in top line revenue to a lot of these large healthcare institutions uh, who are maybe onboarding a few dozen clinicians at a given time. And so you add up a few dozen clinicians at $7,000 a day over 100 days, and it adds up to a very large number uh, of dollars that health systems are leaving on the table, particularly in the wake of this like macro backdrop of there's a clinician shortage. There, there are not enough practitioners across the country to, to fill the, the medical need that our society has right now. And so there's this uh, kind of also race for, for talent uh, within the, the medical industry writ large. So you're trying to shorten the time frame to onboard qualified clinicians. Yeah. So the, the verification process today is manual. You're, you know, you're calling the state medical licensing companies. You're calling the, the specialty medical boards. You're, you're going to the internship, residency, fellowship programs to ensure that Dr. Smith is Dr. Smith. And we built software uh, to automate that process and really cut down and expedite the whole onboarding. Well, exciting, exciting stuff. I, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to see this unfold. I'm sure this might be one of many ventures in your future based on uh, the little that I've, I've learned about you over the years. So good luck and uh, yeah, exciting stuff. Uh, so, well, thank you. so here, here's the question in, in your, you know, listening to your lay of land podcast, by the way, congratulations, great podcast, lay of the land for anyone that wants to uh, tune in here about startup nation in the wonderful state of Ohio. Yes middle bedrock of our country. Uh, but in your 100th episode, you did a recap or takeaways from all the founders you interviewed. You interviewed some interesting people. 
You talk about four tenets of the reason to pursue entrepreneurship, agency, autonomy, culture, impact. How do you, how do you see one create an opportunity that's something from a nothing moment? You know, how, how would you, how do you do that? Or how do you advise, you know, young, young people that are coming to you that, that want to just have a notion and start moving? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really hard question. And I, I don't know that I have a great answer, but I, I, I do think about this a lot because I, I get to talk to a lot of founders and ask them how the, how they did it. Yeah. Uh, but what, what always draws me to what, what's, what's fascinating to me about this overall is like why you would even opt to do entrepreneurship in the first place, because there are evidently, uh, so many reasons to not do it. You know, just the, the all encompassing nature of it that anything but relentless focus is typically fatal The just like deluge and ubiquity of rejection. Uh, the, the emotional roller coaster with, uh, you know, euphoric highs and devastatingly demoralizing lows. Um, and just like the probabilistically low likelihood that you're going to even be successful. And that if you have the aptitude to be a founder, you could probably just get, you know, a well-paying stable job. Um, but evidently a lot of people opt to, to do this thing anyway. Uh, and so it is worth asking that question, you know, how and why would one opt to do that? Um, and where does that opportunity come from? And so some observations, uh, and I I don't know that any of these are particularly novel. I think a lot of people have studied, you know, founders and and their psychology and, and, but you need a baseline level of ambition. Um, and that baseline tends to be just very high for, for these kinds of people and hand in hand with that level of ambition is there's a, they just exude a certain passion for whatever it is that they are building. And I, I think that's important. Uh, and it sounds like simple, you need passion and ambition, but, uh, if they didn't have those things and they were rational, they would give up <laughs> because for, for all the reasons, you know, just mentioned knowing how hard and humbling the, the whole journey can be, uh, the reality is, is if you're not obsessed with the problem and curious about it to a degree that probably like deters other people, if you were just to talk about it with them, you're going to fail, I think, relative to someone who is that obsessed with it? And there, there is always someone who is that obsessed with it. Um, and so there's like another trite, but I think true saying, which is if you're working on something that others perceive to be hard work, but it's something that you yourself find fun and feels more like play and that you're deeply and innately curious about, that's basically an indication that you are working on something that you can really excel at because to the degree that you can work on something that 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 is fun for you like that, but looks really hard to other people, then you, no one can out compete you because you're just doing it on your own volition. I love that. I love that. I, I think just being self-reflected, I, I think that's actually my own career path is that I, I myself had a passion for just freedom and financial freedom and, and, and the pains of what it caused people and health relationships and the like. And yeah, so I, I guess I, I can't teach that passion to others to like, enthusiastically go after it and try to share that for others. You no. know? So, so and it's, it's, cool. it's, it's difficult to find it, but you know, people like you know, Charlie Munger talks about following your natural drift. Steve Jobs talks about, you know, that kind of passion. Paul Graham talks about it. I think in a, in a recent essay that he actually had kind of exactly about this, but it's like, it's certainly backed up by, you know, the hundreds of founders that I've gotten to learn from that, that sentiment. And I, I don't know exactly how to uh, cultivate it, but it is requisite. 
Um, And so there's that, there's kind of like a mentality, but then there's also, you know, where does the opportunity origin come from itself? You know, where, where does that sounding insight or idea come from? And from that perspective, I think you can be a little bit more specific about where, where they come from. And the, the framework that I've used to think about it is the ideas themselves tend to come from within or without. Um, and so that's just helped me like remember this thing. But uh, within refers to people paying attention to their own problems or their own curiosities. And if you try to solve a problem that you yourself experience, the, the, the entrepreneurial journey from there is often one of realizing that what you have solved for yourself is useful to other people because other people have most of the time your problems are not unique. Um, and so you can scale whatever it is that, that you'd worked on for yourself. And that's in contrast to ideas that come from without, which I think is more about trying to observe external forces that come from the world uh, at large and is about paying attention to, you know, uh, paradigm shifts and, and uh, the, the waves of technology. And I, I think that's, that's where actual and my own founding story comes more into play because, you know, they were not problems directly felt by me or my co-founders. They were problems acutely felt by healthcare practitioners. But yeah. we were able to ask the questions like, why is that the, the way it is? And, and we could imagine a future that we thought should exist. And, and that's what we've been working kind of backwards from towards. So you sort of stumbled into it. Like, wait a second, that's a problem. I think we might be able to c- come up with a fix for that. It's interesting. We, ex- yeah, it, it, we did stumble into it. We actually had asked chief medical officers, you know, what keeps you up at night? Um, <laughs> and and there's enough pattern recognition there to be like, they want us to solve credentialing. And we didn't know what credentialing was, but, you know, from there we learned. <laughs> I, well, that's a great, that's a great process. Uh, I, I, wow. Um, I've heard this from other other founders, and obviously other people have heard the idea of move face move fast and break things. And you mm. wrote on your blog uh, sort of an iteration of this of move fast and break things works at the expense at the expense of broken things. You know, for consequential products, it is more important to get it right than to get it fast. Getting it right costs more time up front, but affords higher velocity later. Do you think? And and because you've been in this startup nation and ecosystem and everyone sort of regurgitates the same ideology. I guess the group think <laughs> it's kind of cool yeah. that you've, you're spinning it on its head and looking at it and saying, wait a second, I hear that, but let me look at the opposite side of that. That's how I'm, I'm perceiving the way that you're writing that. But um, do you think the tech culture pendulum, and I guess maybe that's the point that the pendulum goes too far where everyone believes a certain thing. It goes, you know, too far and fast and everyone's in, co- in common with that common theme. You know, done is better than perfect mindset and building. You know, what is, what is the price culturally, societally, you know, um, even institutionally that um, we're commonly paying for these novel ideas and technologies that were brought to market quickly instead of durably? Yeah, that's a fun question. I think we, we, we can talk about the price I will say I don't – I think the, the value of move fast and break things, you, you can't just write off entirely because, I mean, evidently it was really uh, valuable for the firms that did it when they did it. And it was like a real declaration of what they stood for and how they were going to build things, right? Like this came out of Facebook, but companies I think like Uber and, and others yeah. kind of carried the flag. And so if you wanted to work that way, that's totally okay. You know, you, you don't have to work at those companies 
is very opt-in, but I think it was like an effective filter um, and very communicative of the kind of culture that they they wanted to to work with. Right. The, the challenge, and and this came from my own perspective, tempered and reined in by the industries that I've worked in, which have been healthcare and, and government infrastructure, was just that that kind of philosophy wouldn't work. Because it, if you think about like who the customers are in those industries and, and who I've, I've been trying to sell to over the last decade, you're talking I mean, literally about secretaries of state and chief medical officers. Right. Uh, and they tend to be just very risk averse professionally because the, the consequences of, of broken things and things going wrong in government or in healthcare are, are perniciously bad, you know, and the incentive to rethink the way that they have always done things is pretty low. Um, even if it's not a great way that it exists today. And so it, it tends to be very zero-sum thinking and very short-term time horizons. And you, you, so you have to, like, knowing, like, in an, maybe in an ideal world, you can, you know, recreate government and healthcare. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, the, the bar that I set is too low. But, you know, we exist in this world, and so I'm trying to <laughs> figure out how to make the way we do things better. That's practical. Um, yeah. and so from a, a product management perspective, which is, is like day to day, and professionally, like what, what I focus on, I just became to believe it was going to be a lot more effective, especially for startups operating in these spaces to, to, and again, I didn't come up with this idea of going slow to go fast, but to, to follow that path, uh, because, you know, when you think about like an MVP, for example, in the context of a startup in, in these industries, the, the regulatory compliance bar and laws that you have to comply with and, and uh, security and IT standards that are in place are typically something that only Fortune 500 companies would even have to contend with or, or be aware of. And so you have to be a little bit more intentional about how you're going to approach building something from scratch with very limited resources uh, while trying to build trust in, in these kinds of industries. Uh, this is not necessarily directly related to this, but, but, you know, you're of a generation that's, you know, going to social norms, people have grown up with, um, I, you know, I guess I see, you know, like little three-year-olds with a screen, right? They're, you know, here's their babysitter, the iPad, you know, oh, so we're, yeah, yeah. we're living on screens, you know, 11 hours a day. Um, you know, obviously without understanding the long-term impacts or, you know, repercussions of social media and, you know, and how this um, has been depicted in movies like social dilemma, but wh where, where do you think the line of, I mean, you're doing something very clear. Okay. We're saving the, the healthcare companies. I mean, the, the hospitals time and onboarding people that's, that's clear. And that's, there's no, it doesn't seem like there'd be a downside unless the diligence wasn't thorough enough, but if the diligence is thorough enough, that's, it's a win-win for everybody. But in many businesses and startups, I don't, I, I'm curious your thought about the line of responsibility of whether people think about the unintended consequences of what it is that they're creating, you know, sort of like junk food. Look, you know, I met a guy that <laughs> I won't mention names that, you know, was like, look, I tried to sell organic blueberries. Nobody bought them. So I started selling, you know, chicken wings and pizza and fast food, you know, and that's what sold that, you know, I needed to, I needed to support my family. So I, I wonder, you know, where you think the moral and ethical responsibility of people are when they are trying to feed their family versus just uh, thinking about the impact of, of what it is they're producing. Yeah, well, the, the thing 
that comes to mind that I, I will never be able to unhear after having heard it that I think just to me captures the entire dilemma that we face. And I, I, I'm not actually that optimistic about it. Uh, but it was uh, an earnings call a few years ago, I believe, uh, with, with Reed Hastings. And he was talking about uh, Netflix's competition. And uh, when you would think about that, you might think you know it's HBO or it's Hulu. But he very explicitly said that they are competing with sleep. I right? heard that. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, this is a race to the bottom uh, for, for attention. And social media has just been on this track to, to optimize for anything that can vie for your attention. And obviously there's been enough of a, of a business upside in that to, I think, you know, even bring companies like Netflix uh, that, that you wouldn't think of as social media companies, um, but into this, this kind of uh, race to the, the bottom of attention. And, yeah. you know, like you think about TikTok, which is, is maybe just the, the latest and most terrifyingly powerful iteration of something that is vying for your attention. Uh, but I think that's pretty clearly what's being optimized for is, you know, how, what can we build that just consumes more of your, your eyeball time. <laughs> when uh, I heard that, when I heard that Reed Hastings one, I actually, I, I, I realized, wow, he actually, he, he had gotten me until he told me what he was doing. I actually probably did lose many hours of sleep. Once he told me, I was like, I'm not letting him get me again. I'm, I'm turning this <laughs> off. I'm getting a half hour of, you know, quiet time before I go to sleep. So it helped me actually hearing that, that he was screwing with my sleep, you know, it's kind of interesting, yeah. but but uh, I imagine younger uh, professionals, I, I hope that younger professionals that are starting up and, and doing things that are impacting the world aren't doing things just to optimize for profit and, and really do understand or at least give a forewarning how many people on Netflix actually know that they're optimizing for sleep or for you know their competition is sleep and, and, and they're winning, as he said. He goes, we're optimizing for sleep and we're winning, you know? Yeah. So it's like, wow, that is so effective. disturbing, you know? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, it's a Black Mirror episode in oh, and of itself. Yeah, yeah for Netflix. Sure. Um, so anyway, uh, you, you, this caught my eye. You mentioned your bio. We talked about this briefly before the show started. Your bio mentioned you incorporated the concept of flanoring in your life. And I I happen to love this. And uh, <laughs> not too many people might be aware. But uh, what is flanoring, flanoring to you and why do you like it? Tell us your how you stumbled upon this. Yeah, yeah. So to me, I, and I... I took Spanish and, and not French, so but I believe it translates as is wandering uh, of sorts. Um, but I've, I've come to think about it really just as walking without purpose, uh, and I, I love this this word because it was something that I it, one of my favorite things to do in life, just truly agendaless exploration. I didn't have like a the vocabulary to to know the there was a word that captures the spirit of this idea that you can, uh, there is no destination. There is no objective. You, you are, you are just walking for walking sake and leaving yourself open to, uh, experience, see, smell, hear, whatever it is around you and just follow what feels interesting and, and compelling. And especially in New York where, you know, everyone's always <laughs> walking with purpose and pace. Um, yeah, it, I, I've always just loved this, this flaneuring concept. The, the the word itself I, I read uh, I think for the first time or at least the first time it, it resonated in a meaningful way was 
uh, from Nassim Taleb, who, I, who talks about it in a more professional context uh, where the idea is more about leaving yourself, um, ho- holding the space for optionality and, and knowing that you want to keep yourself open to, to opportunities as they arise and be able to, to jump at the ones that will compel you to, to jump um, and that you need to actually hold the time and space to think about what it is that you want to do. Um, and I, you know, practically speaking, I, I think at least the way I interpreted what he was talking about in this professional context was in the form of something like a sabbatical, you know, where, where you without a plan, without direction, without an agenda can just kind of sit and see opportunities in the world and, and uh, really kind of lean into your intuition about which of those feel most exciting to you. I, I think, I don't know if this is a, uh, this is maybe it not be precisely accurate, but I remember hearing a story a number of years ago about a guy, a Japanese train operator, and the Japanese subway stations were very slow and very loud as they got into the stations. But the guy happened to be a bird watcher, and he was lenoring about, <laughs> and he saw the bird with a very sharp beak, fish, without making a ripple in the water. And he was like, huh went back to his engineers and they designed the tip of the front of the Japanese bullet trains with the same tip as that particular bird. It increased velocity and reduced the sound as they entered the stations. So you, you know, I think it's a concept called biomimicry. You can add that to yeah, the yeah. list. It's pretty cool. Na- so <laughs> nature has figured out most of the, the things. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So, um, you, you, you also have a passion for obviously reading and investing wisdom. Um, you know, as you say, conventional invest, investing wisdom prescribes certain investment behaviors based on companies' historical performance. But wow. you've written, if you followed conventional wisdom in the past 20 years, you'd likely missed out on some of the investment opportunities during your lifetime and the companies behind them that basically took a totally unconventional approach like Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Shopify, NVIDIA. If conventional wisdom is out, how, 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 would you, how do you invest and what would you say, you know, to use as a framework for evaluating investments? And do you think that they will become commonplace in the future? And or, you know, will these apply in the next five to 10 years, um, in your opinion? Yeah, well, there's a few things I think about when I think about investing frameworks. And maybe... Maybe, maybe it's like it will be helpful to understand how my thinking on it had evolved over time. Um, because I, I first fell down the investing rabbit hole almost by, um, by chance, an accident. In, in middle school, at my school, we all had to play the uh, New York Stock Exchange game. And uh, completely by luck, with no more skill than the proverbial monkey throwing darts at the, at the stock market board, uh, I ended up as a, as a winner of, of the New York stock exchange game. And, uh, they brought the winners down to, to, to the New York stock exchange. So, you know, you got to see the, the trading floor. Uh, and at the, I, I was, I was hooked. Um, having built though, a virtual portfolio with virtual money, uh, but in the real companies and really from a place of wanting to understand how the stock market worked at that point and how it was possible that I was, that I was able with, with truly no <laughs> skill, uh, to be able to outperform over that period of time, I started reading, like, like you mentioned. And so I, you know, 
Ben Graham's The Intelligent Investor, uh, Fisher's Common Stock and Uncommon Profits, uh, Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, Klarman, Margin of Safety, right? All those guys. Uh, and then ultimately, like inevitably, if you read those, you find your way to Buffett. And then for me, to Munger. And Munger has definitely had the biggest impact on the evolution of of my thinking with, uh, I ju- it just felt the most grounded in, in reality to me. The, this idea of, of uh, you know, the irrationality and emotionality of people, the, the, the cognitive bias, uh, the mental model frameworks. Um, and so from, from there, there was like, it, once I saw that, it was impossible to unsee it. And so when I think about where I am today, uh, I feel like I'm more heavily influenced now by investors like Morgan Housel, and David Gardner from The Motley Fool and Kathy Wood from ARC. And, and then also, I think, heavily influenced by my exposure to venture capital uh, from the startup and entrepreneurship side and applying somewhat of a VC thinking to public markets. Um, and so, like, you know, I, like, like anyone, I don't know, you know how the market is going to perform, uh, what stocks are going to be up or down. And I, I don't and I haven't ever really felt a, a sense in trying to time it. But I, I, I have become comfortable with uh, an investing approach that assumes somewhat VC analogous uh, power law risk return profiles, betting on the exponential implications of technology innovation and uh, understanding that in that model, like most of the returns are going to come from a few companies uh, that, that really outperform. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I think it stems from my own interests in, in technology and, and startups uh, and entrepreneurship. And when you just think about how the, just how software has driven the, the marginal cost of production for like everything closer to zero and, and afforded the, this like technological leverage uh, to people across, you know, I mean, AI is like in the zeitgeist today, but you know, the cost of automation, the the cost of transportation, genomic sequencing, just like so many technologies that used to be prohibitively expensive uh, are now affordable and and mass adopted. Um, and so when you think about, you know, the Amazons, the Netflix, the Shopify's, those companies that you had mentioned, like over the last 30 years, I don't know that there was ever a time where they were perceived as undervalued. You know, they were always richly priced, overvalued, too expensive, but evidently they had been severely undervalued. Um, and so that, that guides, I think, a lot of my investment thinking. That and, and this idea that, that I take seriously, which is that buying stock is not just buying stock. It's, it entails a literal ownership. And so I like to take that seriously and only invest in companies that I feel good about, that I would like literally want to own or work for in some hypothetical. That's a great. That's a great. Uh, that's a great blend of Peter Lynch and Buffett and Munger and, uh, and and yeah. I actually happen to have Joel Greenblatt as one of the guests on one of the podcasts. So yeah, he's he's he's, oh, he's, he's a he's he's really a phenomenal guy too. Yeah. Um, so we're running out of time, and I, I I feel like I could speak to you for weeks. So I, I hope to be able to have an opportunity <laughs> to speak to you more because there's so much to unpack. I uh, I also am a massive Charlie uh, Charlie fan, and it's had a profound impact. Like you said, once you've seen it, it's, you can't unsee, you know, it's like, I have to pretend I don't know something now. 
Um, so what, what is a, um, I guess I'll leave with, uh, uh, two, two last things. What is a daily habit that makes you better or gives you joy? Would you say the flanoring or is there something else is reading? Do you, do you carve out time for reading and thinking? I, I try to, I don't think I can honestly say it's a daily habit though. I, though I try to, to do it daily. The the only thing with consistency that I've been able to establish is a habit daily over the the last ten years is I I do fifty push ups every day. There that's, you go. All right, that's good. That's, that's a good one. And I I feel like it's a great way to start the day. I, I think Herschel Walker <laughs> I think only did push ups and sit ups and he was he was quite an athlete. So anyway, let people know where where can they connect with you? Websites, social media. Where where can people find you if they want to learn more? Sure, sure. Um, Twitter. Uh, as Stern Hefe, J-E-F-E, uh, laytheland.fm is where you can find the podcast. And, and that will actually have all the links to, to um, where, where you could reach out directly. Um, so that, that will probably be the easiest. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm grateful for your coming on and spending time. Your future is, is going to be, uh, um, I'm excited to be a witness to, to what your future, uh, how, seeing your own future unfolds. So uh, best of luck to and, and success in every, every venture that you're, uh, you got your hands on. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.